The first Bible reading for this evening comes from Revelation chapter 17. It's 875, as Haley just said. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of the prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is the eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. And continuing on in chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, 
Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given, pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power, in one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and bodies and souls of men. They will say, The fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her wills and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea, will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will, excla they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and, pro saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of a bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints, and of all who have been killed on the earth. Thanks very much to our readers. Um, well, what are we to make of that? That's, that's long and it's a bit full on and it's seemingly at first blush confusing. So please join with me in prayer as we come to wrestle with this part of God's word. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the opportunity yet again to have you speak to us through the scriptures by your spirit. <clears throat> 
Uh, We pray, please help us to hear you clearly. Please help us to see ourselves clearly in the light of it. To see our motivations. To see where we can be comforted and where we need to be corrected or rebuked. And please help us to see your son in this and his glory and to mould our lives around him more and more. Amen. Well, tonight we're up to chapters 17 and 18 of Revelation and we are very much on the home stretch. By now we've covered most of the book and we've been able to get some idea of its big picture, at least hopefully. So now that you've come this far, and your eyes have adjusted to its colours, and your ears have keyed into its rhythms, let me ask you a question. How does it compare for you to other books in the Bible? Let me ask that another way. If you had to pick one other book in the Bible that it most resembled, what would it be? Now, at first blush, you might think, well, none of them. Revelation is just so vivid and noisy that it's completely alien to us. On a bit more reflection, you might be able to remember the odd bit of maybe the Old Testament that seems a bit similar. Passages from Daniel or Zechariah or Ezekiel that seem to have a few of John's monsters and angels and numbers and visions in them. But it's hard to think of one whole book, isn't it, that looks exactly or even vaguely like Revelation. Now, I tend to agree, but I'm going to have a stab at it anyway. For me, the book that Revelation most resembles is Job. Revelation reminds me most of the book of Job. Of course, in most ways, they couldn't be more different. Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible, whereas Revelation is the youngest. Job's a poem, Revelation's prose. Job's tragic Revelation is glorious. In Job, God only shows his face right at the very end. In Revelation, God is everywhere, all the time. Revelation looks like it's set in a Lewis Carroll novel, a psychedelic wonderland, apocalyptic theme park. Job is four guys sitting down in a paddock. They are very different books in some ways, and yet for all of their differences... I'm convinced that the same burning question lies at the heart of them both. And I'm convinced that no two books in the Bible wrestle with that question more than these two books. And that question is the problem of pain. Both books revolve around the problem of pain. Specifically, Both books are about the problems of the pains and sufferings of faithful people. Job on the one hand, Christians on the other. But although they both share this central theme, I think there's a crucial difference between how they deal with it. And that's really what I want to deal with tonight. Because they come at this problem from two totally different angles. Job's problem with suffering is where it came from. What did I do to deserve what I'm experiencing, Job asks. But the church in Revelation is asking the opposite question. Not where their suffering came from, but where it's going. Let me read to you verse 10 of chapter 6. 
They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? When will their suffering end? And how will it end? That's the question Revelation asks and answers. Which is a step up from Job in a lot of ways. Because Job, the man, asks a question which Job, the book, never answers. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. The book never intends to answer that question. In fact, the Bible as a whole never really tells us where evil comes from. But it does tell us where it's going, even if it makes us wait until Revelation to find out. Now, for the more philosophically inclined amongst us, that might be really frustrating. After the existence of God, where exactly evil comes from is probably the oldest and most important question humans have ever asked. To say that God only tells us what he's going to do with it once it's here seems a little intellectually dissatisfying. But for people who are suffering, it's the only answer that's satisfying. When you're in pain, you don't care where the pain comes from. You just want it to stop. When I catch a cold, I don't care how I caught it. I want to know when I'm going to be back up on my feet again. And in the face of suffering... I think the philosophical question shrinks back to something exactly like that. It's philosophical and it fades into the background, even for the philosopher. When will this be over? That's the question that matters. And it's at this stage in Revelation as we go through it that we get the answer. This is the stage when we find out where evil is going. You see, from chapters 6 to 16... John's been describing what will happen in the world between the first and second comings of Christ. And when chapter 16 confirms that God will eventually destroy the world because of its rebellion, the way is then clear for him to replace it with the new heavens and the new earth of chapters 21 to 22. But before that can happen, one thing still remains to be done. To destroy the evil, supernatural forces that were behind the world's rebellion in the first place. That's where evil is going, to destruction. And that's what chapters 17 to 20 are about. Tonight, we're looking at the first two of those chapters. And I'm going to do it in two points. The first point, heaps longer than the second point. So when I say second point, don't all kind of sigh. But before we get started, let me tell you those two points' names. First of all, chapter 17, Party Now. Chapter 18, pay later. Chapter 17, party now. Before we get started, let me show you this picture which should turn up on the screen by the German Renaissance artist, Albert Dürer. What do you make of it? Well, it's a bit hard to know what to make of it, isn't it? There's so much going on and it's all just a bit busy. There's some people in the bottom left-hand corner and they all look fairly well-to-do in a Renaissance kind of way. But we can't really know much more about them than that, can we? In the top half, there are clouds and people with wings, and we presume, who we presume to be angels rather than X-Men. But, you know, again, it's a bit hard to tell what they're doing up there or why they're there. The bottom right-hand corner is easily the most interesting. There's a well-dressed woman holding up a cup in her right hand. 
either as if she's toasting someone or about to take a good long pull at it. Either way, it looks like it's been a pretty crazy night out. Somewhere along the way, she's managed to catch a lift home on a seven-headed monster. (laughs) The point is, it's all pretty hard to understand. Now, as you'd probably already guessed, this is Dura's version of what John saw in chapter 17, verses 3 to 6. However, at least John saw it in colour. So come back to the text with me as we treat it a bit like a colouring in book and let John get out his pencils. Read with me verse 3. Come with me there. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. The scene turns out to be brilliantly vivid. The beast is scarlet. The woman's dressed in purple and scarlet, glittering with yellow gold and sparkling jewels and milky white pearls. But it's only when we colour in what's in her cup that we see how sinister she is. It's red. She's drunk, but not on wine. Verse 6 says again, The woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Whoever this is, she's not a woman. She's a monster. The angel describes her in verse 2 of chapter 17 as the great prostitute who sits on many waters. And the sign on her head in verse 5 confirms it. Mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. It's a hideous scene. But it's still one that John is confused about. What does all this mean in the real world? Well, it's at this point that I think we see John make a good decision. Rather than just rely on what he sees to understand the picture, he lets the angel interpret it for him. Look at verse 7. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And the rest of the chapter is that explanation. Now, before we exactly get onto that interpretation, it's worthwhile to pause for a minute to think about what this tells us about how to read the Bible. In particular, how should we read a part of the Bible as picture book-like as Revelation? There are so many options out there about it. How on earth do I know which is the right one? Well, now, this is hardly the time for a full-blown lecture on interpretation, but I think two tips are useful. Firstly, we interpret what's unclear in the light of what's clear. That's what John does here. He sees a crazy vision he doesn't understand, but rather than let loose in a blaze of speculation, he lets the angel explain it to him. And we should do the same thing. When we read something that's unclear... We should see if something else clears it up. Now, this seems almost too obvious to mention, but I've seen so many people in Connect Group make this mistake and made it so many times myself that we just can't ignore it. One of us gets asked in group what a bit of the Bible means and we launch into an explanation straight away without first actually just reading on a bit to see if the text gives us an answer itself. We have to let the clear bits 
clear up the unclear bits. But the second tip flows from the first. If the unclear bits can't be resolved, we have to be okay with leaving them ambiguous. God's a good communicator. And if once we've had a really good hard think about it, he still leaves something up in the air, we have to assume it doesn't matter too much if we can't get it down. Revelation is the perfect example of this. People have wasted entire lives making this mistake, trying to pin down the finest details that every vision, number, monster and name means, not realising it was never really meant to be read this way. It's like taking a landscape painting and reading it like a grid reference map. Let's not make the same mistake ourselves. But back to what the angel says this actually means. Having said how careful we need to be how not to read too much into a text, particularly when it's as vivid and metaphorical as Revelation, the chapters we're looking at tonight give us some of the most historical clues in the whole book. And the woman's identity is revealed right at the end of chapter 17. Look in verse 18. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Now, given the time when John's writing this, there seems little doubt that this is the city of Rome. And I think verse 9 of chapter 17 confirms it. Rome, historically, just physically, sits on seven hills. And the angel here describes that the beast's seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. The woman is Rome. Rome who sucked in the surrounding nations to trade with her and take on her culture. What verse 2 describes is the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. That's the woman. Well, who's the beast? Well, verse 8 and following describes her. Now, the angel isn't as clear here as he was when he identified the woman, but he doesn't need to be. He doesn't need to be because we've already seen this beast in chapter 13 and we know who it is, the Roman emperor. And this makes sense in the scene. Just as the woman rests on the beast, the city of Rome rests on the fate of its emperor. But the angel goes further than chapter 13 and explains that the beast isn't just one emperor, but the whole line of emperors. The seven horns are seven hills, we've already seen that, but they're also seven kings. Look at verse 10. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. Now, there's lots of arguments about which emperors John has in mind here, but who they are is really beside the point. The point is that Beast isn't just one emperor, but all the emperors. And in fact, the whole idea of emperors, of governments who elevate themselves to the level of gods over their people. And those fake gods, these emperors, are headed for destruction. You can see it there in verse 8. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come, out of the, come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. Well, so much for the history lesson. But what does it all mean? Well, as we saw two weeks ago, the beast of the Roman Empire isn't just an historical figure. It is an historical figure but it's an historical figure controlled by a spiritual power. The dragon of chapter 12, Satan, 
Satan used the emperors as his unwitting puppets to hit God where it hurts by persecuting Christians. More than that, it represents any government that tries to take the role of God in the lives of its citizens, that demands they build their lives around the nation rather than God and punishes anyone who refuses. So that's what it means. But what does it mean for us? Well, it's a warning, I think, not to worship anything that isn't God. Specifically, it's a warning not to worship a nation or a city, as Satan convinced people to worship the Roman Empire and Rome. Now, in some ways, we're probably in no danger of worshipping Australia or its de facto capital, Sydney. Apologies to Glenn or anyone else here from Melbourne. Particular apologies to anyone here from Canberra, the nation's actual capital. Australians can be a patriotic bunch when we want to be, but I think we're also sensible and cynical enough to know that Australia is not perfect and that just because we were born on this patch of dirt rather than that patch of dirt doesn't make us the greatest people in the history of the world ever. Nor do I think it's wrong to love your country and be grateful for where you live. But there's a world of difference between national pride and nationalism. And where it's okay to love your country or your city, we must never love them so well that that love interferes with our love of God. I think in our modern era, Anzac Day is a great example of where maybe as a nation we have spilled over a little too far in this area. It is definitely right to honour the men and women who died to protect us in the First World War. But as each year goes by, I wonder if Anzac Day doesn't seem to me to get just that little bit more religious each time. More and more I find people in the media and generally talking about the Anzac spirit and how it forged this mythical thing called Australia and that this spirit now lives on in the lives of Australians. We hold state services that seem designed less to, less to remember the dead than to worship them. And we stand in a minute of solemn secular silence rather than honour the dead by thanking the God in prayer who made those men and women and gave them their courage. What's most sickening is when churches jump on the bandwagon in the wrong kind of way. When they cave in to the Anzac religion in an attempt to be relevant to their wider culture just absorbing what the newspapers are saying it really is about. It's dishonouring to God. The nauseating irony is that this same attempt at relevance is dishonouring to Anzacs. The compromise that's willing to turn men and women into gods just to get a few more people in through the church door is the very sort of opportunism that dishonours them. Let's take another example. Maybe one that's slightly closer to home, slightly less theoretical. Let me ask you a question. If you ever felt God wanted you to leave Australia, do you think you could do it? Let's say there was some amazing opportunity for you to serve overseas in ways that far outstripped what you're able to do here and now. Could you do it? Would you be able to leave the comforts of home? For example, and it really is just an example, is missionary service something that you've rejected outright 
as an option for your life. Reject it not because you feel God hasn't gifted you that way, just because you've already told God in advance that he's not allowed to ask you. Or let me put an even sharper point on it. Maybe it's not your country you love, but our city. Sydney is a beautiful city, wealthy and cultured, and very similar in that way to the Rome of its day. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, oh, I could never leave Sydney. More than that. I've even heard people say, and only half-jokingly, I could never leave the North Shore. <laughs> really? Never? No matter what the reason? <laughs> now, please don't mishear me. Sydney's a beautiful city and the North Shore's a lovely part of it. And you don't have to leave. But if you've decided already that you couldn't leave it for any reason, no matter how good, perhaps you've been sucked in a little bit too much by it. Perhaps you've got a little bit too much of the beast about you. We must love our country and our cities. but We must never love them so much that we wouldn't abandon them in a heartbeat if we thought God wanted us to do so. Which brings me, mercifully, to my second and much shorter point. We've had the party, party hard, but with chapter 18, we see this city, Rome, paying later. We know who the woman and the beast are and why they're so evil. But I said at the beginning of this sermon that these chapters were about where evil is going and how it's going to get there. And that's what we see now. If our first point saw the woman and the beast at the height of the party, now we are seeing the morning after. For the human powers that are Satan's puppets, it is a case of party now, pay later. And now here in these chapters, we see them paying later. Because we see that the Roman Empire and Rome won't survive forever. Look at verse 16. This is really important. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They'll bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Now, until now, the woman of Rome and the beast of the empire have relied on each other. They've got along like hand in a glove. But one day, they'll turn on each other and destroy each other. Now, we don't actually ever see this happen in the history of Rome. But we need to remember here that Rome is just one example of the larger evil of human nations becoming the gods of their people. There's a reason this woman, Rome, is called Babylon. It's not because John's geography is dodgy. It's because of what Babylon means. If Egypt is the Old Testament's ultimate image of stubborn rebellion, as we saw last week, Babylon is its ultimate image of blind ambition. It was the ultimate Old Testament superpower and the one that six centuries earlier had taken Israel into exile and destroyed its capital, Jerusalem. And as such, here it stands for every nation and every person in that nation that confuses itself for God. And we see the consequences of that ambition here in verse 16. They self-destruct. That's really what chapter 18 is all about. 
chapter 18 just hears what verse 16 and 17 has to say and holds a funeral service. It's an extended funeral service for the nation whose ambitions backfire and destroy them. Where Rome and all the things it represents puts itself at the centre of an international web of trade, the nations will eventually see it for what it really is. Nothing. You can see that there in verses 9 and 10 of 18. Every merchant, verse 11, and every ship's captain, verse 17, will turn away from her. Ultimately, Rome, Babylon, government authorities that have gone crazy will collapse under the weight of the delusions of their own grandeur. God will tear human ambition apart by letting itself tear itself apart. See, it's when we remember who is behind all this that we actually get an insight not just into the politics of nationhood but into the very nature of evil. You see, remember, this is not just talking about Rome and its rulers. Or as we were looking at a couple of weeks ago, a modern example of a Rome, a North Korea and its government. It's about the satanic evil forces that are behind their pretensions to be God. Satan uses these nations, Satan uses people for his purposes. But he doesn't love them for themselves. These people are just puppets. And once they've lost their usefulness to him, he leaves them just to destroy each other. It gives us an insight into something crucial about evil. It is fundamentally unstable and self-destructive. How different to the picture Revelation paints of Jesus. Where Satan destroys his people, Jesus gathers them to himself. And where people have handed over their own ambitions, their own desires to rule themselves over to him, far from destroying their sense of identity, it only enhances it. As those people, those people who laid all their ambitions at Jesus' feet, actually come to be who they were meant to be. They come to do what they were designed to do, to worship him. It's the answer to the paradox that the Bible pictures that People are never more than that they are never more themselves than when they give their lives over to the person who ultimately owns it. Again, you will have noticed that I, I've been mentioning C.S. Lewis a bit through these uh, these sermons. It's certainly not because I agree with everything he says, but I think it's because he has such key insights here into the nature of evil, into the difference between God and Satan. Let me read you an extract from his excellent screw tape letters on that point. This is a devil speaking to his apprentice. To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy, by whom he means God, demands of men is quite a different thing. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. You see, when we're tempted by Satan to sin, brothers and sisters, we've got to remember this. We're just being used. 
And when we're left sitting in the train wreck of the aftermath of yet another self-centred decision, a decision where we decide to put our ambitions first and other people's ambitions and God's ambitions second, Satan won't be there to pick you up and dust you off again. He never had any use for you other than to hurt you and others through you. And the only reason he'll ever come back to you is to do it all over again. How different to Jesus. How radically different. And yet Satan won't get away with it forever. And this surely is where we find our comfort. Because verse 16 is not the end of the line there. Look at verse 17 of chapter 17. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. See, Rome and the emperors, as representative of all human ambition to be God, agreed to give the beast their power to rule, unwittingly serving Satan. But behind Satan, there was an even greater power they unwittingly served. You can see it there again. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose. God is in control of the downfall of these nations and what they represent. And they will only continue to terrorize the world for as long as he lets them. Or in the words of this chapter, until his words are fulfilled. Just as in Job, where God had Satan and his earthly implements on a tight leash and only let him loose on his victim for not one second longer than was necessary. So here we see the utter sovereignty of God over the sufferings of his people. In these chapters, God destroys the agents that Satan uses to persecute his people. Chapters 19 to 20, we'll see him go straight for the jugular, straight to Satan himself. But we must take comfort in the fact of a universe in which there is a spiritual being which would use us, as crazy as that sounds, use us and abuse us to know that on top of him is a power that it can only catch a glimpse of and yet we have seen in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in North Korea or China or Pakistan or Nigeria, we can do so with confidence because we do so to a God who is in charge of everything. People say that the sovereignty of God in some ways must stop us from wanting to pray. Why pray when God has everything in hand? But why would I pray to a God who didn't have everything in hand? Why would I pray to a God who may or may not be able to do something? Surely when I see this, I'd pray all the time. And in the utter confidence that God will carry out his tasks. When we suffer in our own small ways, for our faith in Christ. Can't we share in that same confidence? And when we ourselves fall into the trap of sin, fall for the lie that evil is good for us and good is bad for us, we can know that even that, in a strange way, is in the hand of a sovereign God. But precisely because he's sovereign, he's the one we can go to ask forgiveness for. 
and then he'll give it. These are big truths. These are big things we're learning in Revelation. Let's pray now that in the coming week they would really soak into us like good rain. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we're sorry for when sometimes we've been naive, for when we have thought that, well, actually, maybe our own ambition is the right way. Maybe, actually, we will be better off if we do that. But we're sorry for that. We're sorry for ignoring you and caving into the massive self-deception that sin is, not understanding that sin is ultimately self-destructive that we're just being used by powers that maybe we don't really understand. And that actually, to really find ourselves, we can only find them in your Son, Jesus. We pray, please forgive us for when we've fallen for that lie and sinned accordingly. We thank you that you are in charge. We thank you that you are in charge of those Christians who are persecuted by those still in the grip of that lie. We pray, please, Help them to persevere. Please help us to think of them. Please help us to serve only you, not our city, not our country. Only you who deserve our worship. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.